What a beautiful song. It's perfect for what we're going to talk about today, taking some risks. Um, I am honored that you are here today. And as we've said a few times already, uh, we are committed to getting you home in time for the start of the NFC Championship game. Go Niners! And... Uh, and, and we are so committed. Here's what I'm going to do. This is going to be a 25-minute message. Uh, I am so confident this is going to be a 25-minute uh, or less that uh, we are going to put a clock up on the screen <laughs> counting down 25 minutes. And uh, if I don't get it done in time, uh, you can just stand up and walk out, I guess. Is it as if you needed a clock to do that? Uh, uh, I, we're not going to leave it up the whole time because I think that would be distracting uh, for all of us. I, I actually want you to be listening for what God might be saying to you this morning rather than counting down a clock. But uh, we'll check in on it from time to time and we'll see how we're doing. All right. Are we ready? 25 minutes on the clock. Let's go. Well, you already started it. All right. I would ask you this morning. Do you ever find yourself wondering why you're not moving forward with a dream that you have or a plan that you're excited about? And the more you think about it, you realize there's a fear there. There's something that is holding you back. Uh, we're going to talk about risk today. We're going to talk a little bit about why we don't risk. And to get started talking about risk, I think it's appropriate for us today to talk for a moment about football. Um, a few years ago, two authors wrote a book called The Power of Bad. One of them is a journalist. One of them is a research psychologist. Anyway, in this book, they talk about how NFL coaches study the smallest statistic to find every possible advantage. Uh, if you're a football fan, you probably already know that. They're metrics that tell a coach what to do at any given moment. But even with those, many coaches make the same statistical mistake week after week. And this mistake always happens on fourth and short situations. Fourth down, when their team only needs a yard or two to get a first down, keep the ball nine times out of ten. Instead of the riskier decision to go for the first down and continue the drive, most coaches settle for sending in their kicker to punt the ball. All right, but here's what statistically those coaches all know. Every coach knows this. 66% of the time, if a team goes for it on fourth and short, they get the first down. If a team goes for the first down on fourth and one, fourth or two, they usually get it. And yet, most coaches, knowing that statistic, still choose to punt. Okay, why are coaches willing to take the risk? Those authors call it the power of bad. What they explain in their book is our brains are wired to give more importance to negative events than to positive ones. You fixate on negative events or outcomes as opposed to possible positive outcomes. And a coach knows that if they choose the risky play and they fail, and then the other team goes on to score, the fans will be unforgiving, right? And the news will be unforgiving. And sportscasters will call that coach reckless, and they will say that he lost momentum with that choice. And, and they'll talk about how the terrible choice was a turning point in the game. And so most coaches play it safe. And that fear of taking a risk, a statistically good risk, actually can lead to failure, many teams losing a game. And I bring it up today as we jump into the fourth week in Tomorrowland, because if you are gonna, if you are gonna pursue the dreams, the Tomorrowland that God has put in you, you have got to be willing to take some risks. And we are going to look at the Bible today to see what it says about good faith-led risk-taking. 
But before we do, let's just recognize something. Many of us think risk is a negative situation we should always avoid. Let me just say that again. To a lot of us, risk is a bad word. And anything we can do to minimize risk in our lives is a good thing because risk brings anxiety and stress and risk leaves us uncertain and risk leads to failure. We think risk is something we should avoid at all costs. But actually, risk is a part of life. And risk is a big part of faith. And risk is a huge part of your tomorrow. Risk is going to bring you opportunities to grow. It'll increase your strength. It'll deepen your faith. But if you are too overwhelmed by fear to see a risk and then assess it and then make a good decision about whether it's one worth taking, you will miss out on all of those things. And I, I think you'll miss out on what it is God has for you tomorrow. If you are going to move into the Tomorrowland dream that God placed in you, there is a good chance it's going to involve taking some risk. Not every risk, not bad risks. It is going to involve taking some faith-led risks. And I know that can be scary, but it is worth it to live a life that God has in store for you. And, and you know how I know that? Because your soul is already crying out for that kind of life. Our souls long to take risks and live lives of adventure. And it's why we do so many other risky things unrelated to the stuff we're dreaming about this series. I read an article recently about people taking adrenaline vacations. And so what started as bungee jumping and base jumping has turned into zorbing. Uh, that is rolling down a hill inside of a plastic orb. Or snow kiting, which is kite surfing on a snowboard. Or co-steering, which is making your way from one point on a shoreline to another some great distance away without boats, without ropes, without cars. You just hike on rocks and you jump off cliffs and swim through caves to get to someplace else down the coast. Why do so many people seek out risky activities? Well, this article suggests that in our sedentary overly safe society where there are no dragons to slay or mastodons to hunt. This is an escape from the mundane and the routine. And I need to take risks to feel fully human, to feel fully alive and to feel joy and intensity and, and, and cross sense. Well, I have no desire to do any extreme sport and I don't care if you do or you don't. What I know is your soul wants to live a life of adventure a life that matters, a life full of bold steps of faith and adventures involve risk. Let me show you someone in scripture who was not afraid to take a risk and, and we're gonna learn some things from him. His name is Caleb and we find him in the book of Numbers. Uh, real quick, um, check in on the clock. Uh, so far, so good. All right, what we're about to look at takes place after God's people and Moses have escaped slavery in Egypt. They've been wandering in the desert. They're getting close to being able to go into this promised land that God has been telling them about. And in Numbers 13, we read, take a look. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. God tells Moses, I want you to send some people to spy out the land, 12 tribes, 12 leaders. One of them is a guy named Joshua. Another's a guy named Caleb. The other 10, you don't need to know their names. They never appear in the Bible again. You're about to find out why. 
The Bible tells us that 12 men go to spy out the land, and Moses told them, see what the land is like, whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many, what kind of land do they live in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what I'm about to read you is going to seem like minutia. It's got Hebrew names of people in places. You're gonna hear it. You're gonna hear this and at first go, why do I need to know this? My, my, my guess is your eyes are gonna to wanna to glaze over as I talk about this, but I need you to see it to be able to understand what happens after this part. So take a look with me, try to hang in here through these five verses, all right? I'll read them very fast. So they went up, explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob toward Lebo Hamath. They went up through the Negev, came to Hebron, where Ahamon, Sheshai, Talmai, the descendants of Anak lived. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. And at the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. You got it? Did you survive? All right. You made it through that. Watch this. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community, and we'll skip a little bit. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is the fruit from the land. But the people who live there, oh my gosh, they're so powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. And we even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites, oh my gosh, the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. And, and look at verse 31. We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said the land explored, that we explored, devours people who are living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them, they say. There are giants living in that land. It is too big a risk. Now, the reason I had you read that part with me with all the challenging words, let's go back to that slide. This right here is the actual detail of them spying out the land. And do you, do you see anything in it about really large people, giants? Or them saying that while they were there, the spies you know, felt like grasshoppers. Do you see anything in there about the land devouring the spies as they traveled through it, which is what they say later? No, all this says is where they went, who they ran into, and that they got some really good grapes, pomegranates, and figs and went home. And the reason I want you to see that is because the spies are doing something that you and I do that keeps us from risking as they tell the story to their Israelite friends. They are maximizing the opposition. What causes the kind of fear that keeps us from risking? When we maximize the opposition, when we make the struggle we will possibly face be out to be greater than it really is. And, and I wonder if you might be honest enough to recognize this is a tendency that you have when it comes to risks that you, that you need to take to step into the Tomorrowland dream that God has for you. Do you see the obstacles, the things that could go wrong, like the money you could lose on an investment, or, or the embarrassment you could face if you tried something, or the rejection you might have to deal with if you ask her out and she says no, and do you make those out to be worse than they are? Do you make the hills taller than they are, or the oceans wider than they are? Absolutely we do and we stoke fear in our own selves that keeps us from risking the way we might need to to move forward towards our dream. 
Let me give you a second thing the spies have done here. They've minimized the opportunities. Yes, there's a lot of milk and honey. I know those grapes and pomegranates and figs we brought back were decent, but Moses, people, it's not worth it. And yet the spies know and Moses knows and the people know this is the land that God has promised. If God promised it, trust me, it's worth it. And we've waited so long. And, and, and I know we do this too with our risks. I'm not just afraid it's gonna get hard with opposition. I'm afraid it's not gonna be worth it. What if I invest in this and I do not see a big enough return? What if I step into this career that I feel God's calling me to and it doesn't pay as well as the one I'm currently in and my, my spending capacity goes way down or, or I gotta wait longer until I can retire? Our tendency is to maximize the opposition, minimize the opportunities, make it seem like the risk is not worth it. And sometimes it's not, no doubt. That's good calculation on your part. But much of the time, much of the time, that is your fear talking. That is your fear convincing you. And so the spies come back and they try to convince Moses and the people this is a risk that is not worth taking. Well, not all the spies. There are two who say something else, Joshua and Caleb. The other 10 say, we can't go. They're giants in the land. We're like grasshoppers. But look at verse 30. It says, then Caleb silenced those people before Moses, and they said, come on, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Caleb and his quieter buddy in the moment, Joshua, say, this is a risk, and we should take it. Now, let me tell you how this plays out. The people hear them, and they do not listen because the other spies are far more convincing. And that night, all the people start grumbling and complaining about Moses and, and actually even about God. Why did he bring us out here in the desert to do this to us? And Caleb again tries to convince them to take the risk. Chapter 14, he says, the land we pass through, you guys, it is exceedingly good. If, if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he'll give it to us only. Don't rebel against this Lord. Don't be afraid of the people of the land, but because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Caleb right here, he points out something really good, really wise. How risky can it be when God is the one who told us to do it? Let me ask you, is a risk really a risk when it's God, God's idea to begin with? It doesn't get any less risky. It's more risky to not do it, which is why one of our values around here at Crosswinds is playing it safe is risky. Caleb says, we don't have to be afraid of taking this risk, but it doesn't work. And the people start talking about stoning Caleb. But all of a sudden, the Bible says, the glory of the Lord appears at the tent of meaning. This is some kind of a physical manifestation of God himself. And a voice says to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Now Moses hears this. And he pleads with God, don't do it. Don't strike them down. You, God, are slow to anger. You abound in love. I know that you forgive sin. You forgive rebellion. And God says, okay, I will forgive. 
but not one of those people who disobeyed me or who treated me with contempt or who threatened the life of this person that, that trusted in me, not one of those spies or their family members that are adults, the family members who listen to those spies, will enter the promised land. With two exceptions, Joshua and Caleb. They are the two who eventually entered the land and whose descendants inherited what God had promised. They were the two who were not afraid to take a risk. And if you are gonna pursue the tomorrow that God has put in you, you cannot be afraid to take faith-led, faith-filled risks. When I say that, I mean God risks. God prompted risks. The best tomorrow for you is going to involve taking some risks. And here's why, here's why. The best tomorrow for you requires something that can only be produced in you through risk. The tomorrow that God has in store for you isn't just a thing that is out there for you, it's a thing in you. And for that thing in you to happen, risk must be involved. You know how in, in middle school English you learned about the parts of a story, uh, the rising action and the climax and the falling action, or as uh, my, my English teacher would call it, the denouement? Uh, Caleb had some denouement in the Bible. He's got some falling action after this climactic moment that we just read. And in the falling action, we see what the risk did in him, and it, it shows us three things the risk will do in you. Uh, we get to see what a risk does for someone who a person turns into because of a risk. All right, here's what happens. 40 years pass, that's how long it takes for all of those spies to pass away. And Joshua and Caleb and their families go into the land, and Caleb meets up with Joshua once they get there, which sounds kind of strange because we picture Joshua and Caleb hanging out together for 40 years waiting, but this is a big people group. That's not how it happened. They're not buddies. Uh, they don't have a weekly tea time. They have not started a cornhole league together in the meantime. So they meet up in the promised land and, and look at what a much older Caleb says, Joshua 14. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he's kept me alive for 45 years while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old, and I am still as strong today as the day that Moses sent me out to spy. I am just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. And, and check it out, Caleb at 85 years old, has this incredible energy and exuberance in him. He's ready to go to battle just like he was 45 years earlier. And sure, what the risk did for the people was it brought them to the promised land eventually, but what it did in him, in him, being a risk taker, allowed him to keep his energy, his enthusiasm. And I wonder in you if you've noticed a drop in your enthusiasm or maybe a shift in your enthusiasm, maybe an enthusiasm you now have for some lesser things in this world. What would it be to still be enthusiastic about the right things when you're 85 years old, when you're 105 years old? That's gonna happen because you start taking faith-led risks right now. Okay, let me show you the next part of Caleb's falling action, but let's look at the clock real quick. Uh, okay, I've got about five minutes uh, to hit this one and more. Take a look at what Caleb says when he's 85, okay? He says, now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard that the Anakites were there, their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Okay, at 85 years old, Caleb says, you know those supervillains that live in that valley that God promised us? Let me at them. 85 years old. 
What he says here is, I have a vision for my family in this land that God promised me. And in risk-taking, has made Caleb a person who's optimistic about the future. He's optimistic about what the future holds for him, for his family. And I think if you become a risk-taker, God's gonna turn you into an optimistic person. Do you know that there's a correlation between optimism and longevity? Um, over 11 years, researchers studied optimism and pessimism in over 2,200 adults that were over 52 years old. They found that people who died from coronary heart disease were more pessimistic than the average person. Let's talk about optimism and stress. We know that stress has a negative impact on your health, right? Uh, but you can't always control stress. I love it when I go to my doctor and he says, Chris, you should avoid stress. Um, I wanna say, I'll avoid it, but stress tends to find me. I don't go looking for it, it finds me. Does stress find you? You cannot always avoid stress, but optimistic people handle stress differently. Their body responds differently to stress. And guess what? Unfortunately, you cannot just choose one day to be optimistic instead of pessimistic. It's not that easy. So how do you become a person who stays optimistic about the future? Oh, you take some risks. God-led, faith-filled risks. All right, third and final thing we see in Caleb, third way that this risk has transformed him, and it has to do with Caleb and God. Caleb does not turn into a main character that we read about in the Bible the way Joshua does or Moses does or David, but can I tell you what is written about him? Numbers 14, 24, God said, but because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. This is Deut Deuteronomy 1:35. God said, no one from this evil generation shall see the good land except Caleb, blah, 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 because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Joshua 14, 8, Caleb says, I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. You see that phrase that keeps getting used to describe him? Followed wholeheartedly again and again and again. And I didn't even show you the other verses where it says that about him. Okay, by 85 years old, most people in Caleb's generation had given up. They'd burned out. They'd lost hope. They had died. Caleb had a bright fire burning, and it is because risk-takers stay energized about following God. And I don't know this morning where you are with God, where you and God are at. Some of you, your experience of God right now is real new. You are devouring the Bible. You are trying to, to, to figure out what prayer looks like. You're learning what it is to pray. You're energized by the things of God, and it is beautiful. I love talking with you. But, but others of you are not feeling that. And I love talking with you too, but, but can I tell you why your experience of God and your faith might be becoming mundane and just kind of cruise control? You stopped taking risks. He created your soul to take faith-led risks. That means so many things to give in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable, to serve doing something that makes you feel uncomfortable, to tell someone about Jesus, which might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, to invite someone to church who we will try to make feel very comfortable when you bring them. But if you don't take the risks that God puts in your heart, then it's hard to stay energized 
and continue to wholly follow. Morris West, a well-known novelist who, who passed away almost 25 years ago at his desk, mind you, he wrote this. He said, if a man is centered upon himself, the smallest risk is too great for him because both success and failure can destroy him. It's true. If he's centered upon God, then no risk is too great because success is already guaranteed the successful union of creator and creature beside which everything else is meaningless. You were made to take faith-led risks. All right, will you stand with me? Let's pray. Do we have a way to look at the clock and see how we did? Did we make it? One minute and a half. All right, let's pray. God, we are so grateful that you put risk in us and that you ensure no matter what risk we take, even when we fail on fourth and one, God, that it is not dependent on our lives with you. You are still there in the midst of all of it with us. And God, our, our faith is in you, not the outcome of a risk. God, thank you for calling us into adventure. May the, the, the fear in us of failure not be what stops us from acting on the dream for tomorrow you've put in each one of us. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Thanks for coming today. We'll see you next week. <laughs>